Hey there, Marcus here. It is my joy and privilege to serve as pastor here at Awaken Church in Juneau, Alaska. I pray that in the next few moments, the, the word of God proclaimed is a blessing to you and is nourishing to your soul. But we believe here at Awaken that one of the ordinary means of God's grace in our life is the gathering of the people of God. We believe that it's in the gathering that, that we're known and that we know one another. That it's in the gathering that, that we are shaped and fashioned into the image of Jesus Christ. And so I want to invite you this Sunday to come and join us. Come and worship with us. But for now, I pray that you're encouraged by this sermon. God bless. Turn in your copy of God's Word to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. Verse 35, we're going to uh, pick up where we left off last week. We've, we've been for a, a long time now, probably over a year, going through the gospel according to Mark. We've made it to chapter 10, verse 35. I just want to give you a little, uh, little context of what's going on here. Jesus has just for the third and final time uh, communicated to his disciples that in just a short period of time, he will be betrayed he will be handed over to the leaders of Jerusalem where there will be a mock trial. He will then be turned over to the Romans where they will spit on him, they will mock him, they will crucify him, and on the third day he will rise again. Um, this is his final foretelling of his crucifixion and resurrection. And in response to that, we see James and John come to Jesus with a request. So this is chapter 10, verse 35. This is the word of the Lord. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. And Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the word of the Lord. Amen? Let's, uh, let's pray together. Lord, we, um, we are here gathered together this morning as those who have um, received grace because of the manner in which you served us. And so I ask this morning that we would understand 
what true greatness looks like in the kingdom of heaven, that we would see that to be Christ-like is to serve, and that we would also recognize, Lord, that to trust in you as Savior is also to believe that you are Lord, and for you to be our Lord is for us to be your slave in glad submission and service to you and to your will, and so I pray that we would understand, Lord, the, the dangers of pride and the reality that pride does lead to death and that humility is essential for faith. It is essential for our worship and essential for the way that we love each other. So would you humble us again this morning as we look to you and look to your word. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. amen. So the great, uh, the great 20th century preacher and theologian, uh, affectionately known as the doctor, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he said about the disciples, I don't know what you feel, he says, but I never cease to be grateful for these disciples. I'm grateful for the record of every mistake they ever made, for every blunder they ever committed, because I see myself in them. Is that not the truth? He goes on to say, how grateful should we be to God for the scriptures? How grateful to him that he has not merely given us the gospel and left it at that. How wonderful it is that we can read accounts like this and see ourselves depicted in them. And how grateful we should be to God that it is divinely, that it is a divinely inspired word which speaks the truth and shows the pictures of every human frailty, end quote. When we think about the apostles, we oftentimes don't think about their frailty. We oftentimes immediately think uh, more uh, often about their triumphs. We, we think about them as, as the men who, uh, despite uh, danger to life and limb, proclaimed the gospel all throughout uh, the, the region. They, they are the ones who are, who are the pillars of the faith. They, they are the ones that, that uh, established the church as we know it today. When we think about apostles like the apostle John, for example, we don't think about him in the way that he's depicted in these verses. We, we think about him more like a man who is advanced in years, who is some 50 years after Jesus' death and resurrection is sitting somewhere in Ephesus and he is penning the words of the gospel that bear his name. The gospel of John, which open up with the words, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. We think about the, the John who wrote the book, the letters 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John that in their context over and over again and in different ways and with different language carry a theme and a message that we ought not to love the world nor the things of the world, but, but that we ought to love God and serve God, that we ought to live as citizens of the kingdom, citizens of heaven and not citizens of this earth. John's letters instruct us to love one another, to care for one another, to serve one another. When I think about John, I think about the man who, while on the island of Patmos, wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit the book 
of revelation, the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. The last book in our Bible that is the greatest, the fullest, the most intense um, picture of the glory of Christ. I think about John in, in that way. But that is an entirely different John than the John we see in our text this morning. The John that wrote the Gospel of John and John 1 and John 2 and John 3 and, and Revelation is a transformed John, a holy and entirely different man, a, a sanctified man, a humbled man. But we forget that the disciples were not always these great men of courage and of humility. It's easy to forget that John and his brother James that we see in our text this morning, the sons of Zebedee, were nicknamed by Jesus when he called them to himself the sons of thunder. I would have loved if that was in the text this morning to read just the sons of thunder came to Jesus. Jesus most likely gave them that nickname because probably of their, their ambition uh, most likely because of their attitude, their, their forthcoming nature, the fact that they just kind of were outspoken and out there. And, and that's just not the way I see particularly the Apostle John. But that's who he was. John, James, and Peter, who was always putting his foot in his mouth as well and th saying things he shouldn't say, they, they made up Jesus' sort of inner circle not only were they part of the 12 disciples, but they were the inner of the inner circle. They were those that were closest to Jesus, who were with Jesus most frequently, who spent the most time with him. It was Peter, James, and John who were with him on the mountain when Jesus was transfigured before them, when his flesh was, was sort of peeled back, as, uh, so to speak, and they saw the glory as of the only begotten Son of God and heard the voice of the Father from heaven saying, this is my beloved Son, listen to him. And of the three, John was the closest. He referred to himself in his gospel as the one whom Jesus loved. I'm singling out John, not because the text singles out John, but because it seems impossible to me that someone like John and his brother James would ask Jesus something that is not only so poorly timed, but is filled with pride and filled with worldly thinking and worldly ambition. The reality is that pride in the heart of mankind shows probably more than anything else, I would imagine, our fallen nature. Pr pride puts on display our fallenness, shows our rebellion against God because pride, in, in a sense, is our desire to be equal with God to elevate a, uh, ourselves to a position of equality with God. In fact, that was the issue in Genesis 3 at the fall. In Adam and Eve's interaction with the serpent, with Satan, 
The serpent says to Eve, you will not surely die for God knows that if you take and eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God knows that you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so the scripture goes on to say in Genesis 3 that Eve and Adam, who was right there with her, saw that the tree was good for food, that it was desiring to the eye, and that it was desirable for knowledge, took and ate of it. In Proverbs 16, we read that all the ways of man are pure in his own eyes. They're right in his own eyes. But the Lord weighs the spirit. The proverb says, commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established For the Lord has made everything for its own purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. Everyone who is arrogant in heart, prideful in heart, is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured he will not go unpunished. See, pride is a serious issue. Pride is an issue that God takes very, very seriously because it is an offense. It is a diminishing of God and a a incorrect and inappropriate elevation of self. Let me just tell you what pride is not to help us understand a little bit better. Pride is not when we acknowledge and appreciate the gifts that God has given us, the abilities that he has given us. Pride is not praising and glorifying God for what he has done through us. Pride is is. Certainly not the presence of a godly ambition or desire in your heart because you want to do something and are purposeful because you have direction in your life and seek to accomplish something does not make you prideful. Pride is not the pursuit of mastery in your craft or your calling or the gifts that God has given you. Pride is not doing things well. And pride is certainly not um, seen as, as the scriptures are defended and proclaimed with boldness and with authority. Pride is not any of those things, nor many other things. I love the way that Holman's Bible Dictionary defines pride. It might be the only definition in the Bible Dictionary that doesn't actually give a definition. Instead, what it says is that pride is easier to recognize than it is to define. I love when a dictionary says, we really can't define this, but it's easy to recognize. It, It does go on to say that it's easier to recognize in others than it is to recognize in ourselves. But perhaps the greatest clarification of what pride looks like is found in Psalm 104 verse 5 where the psalmist writes, the wicked boasts in the desires of his soul and the one who is greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him and all his thoughts are there is no God. Pride at its heart is is essentially a, a declaration of I will be my own God. I will be my own savior. I will be my own provider. 
it is a renunciation or a diminishment of the godness of God. And it is an elevation of our humanity to a place of self-sufficiency rather than dependency upon God. But when we come to a, a knowledge of Christ that leads unto salvation, when we come to a saving knowledge of him, we are in that moment humbled. True humility in the Christian life is, is not a virtue that some of us ought to have and some just simply don't. Humility is not something that some of us just happen to possess in greater measure and, and others just aren't as humble. It's not a personality thing. Pride is a sin thing. And humility is a characteristic that should mark ever increasingly all believers. Because humility is necessary, church. Humility is a necessary component of faith. Humility is, is a necessary component of our worship and certainly a necessary component of the way that we love and serve one another as we are called to do. Without humility in the heart, no one is confessing a need for Christ to save. Humility is evident at the moment of confession and belief that Jesus Christ is Lord and he is Savior. There is no such thing. It is a, a contradiction. It is impossible to pridefully call out to God for salvation. To be in need of a savior is to humble yourself before Christ. Pride is, is, or humility is certainly necessary for worship. For how does one have time to ascribe worth or worship to God if we are too busy exalting ourselves? And humility is probably most obviously necessary if we are to love one another as we are called to do in scripture. Jesus said that, that the world will know that we belong to him that we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven by the way that we love one another. Certainly that love spills out over into the world by all means, but the way that you and I treat one another is the evidence that we in fact have received and believed the gospel that we proclaim. Without humility, how could we possibly serve one another and as Philippians 2 says, consider others of more value than ourselves? It's one thing to align ourselves and to serve others knowing that we may gain from it. It's one thing to do something for someone knowing that perhaps it may kind of build into your plan for your life. It is another thing to sacrificially and with expecting nothing in return, serve those around you. If pride is at the heart of our fallen nature, then humility is near the center of our new nature as new creations in Christ. To be humble and to be a servant is to be Christ-like. So the request of James and John sounds simple, doesn't it? But what they are requesting is an incredible example of pride and self-ambition 
and self-elevation because what they are asking for is the highest level of honor possible. They do have something right, so let's give them a little credit first before we are baffled by their arrogance. They do have one thing right. They have one thing right in saying that Jesus is king. They have rightly identified Jesus as the anointed one, as the Messiah, the Christ. They have rightly understood that he is the one who will forever reign, that he will sit on his throne and rule over his kingdom to which there will be no end. And that throne has a right-hand side and a left-hand side. So they got one thing right, but they get a whole lot more wrong when they ask him for the highest positions of, of um, honor in his kingdom. They want to be on his right and on his left. If we don't understand culturally what they were asking for, we might just think that they want to be as close to him as possible, right? Like, hey, we've been with you. We've been close to you all these years. We just don't want to be far from you. So just let us, let us be near you forever, for eternity. But that's, that's not what they're asking. In a kingdom with a king, with a sovereign, that position of, of being seated on his right was a position of high honor. You remember in old churches, I'm sure they're still around today, where they had those, those honor seats on the stage? What a, what a horrible, prideful, arrogant thing. But there were those big, gaudy chairs that the elders would sit in, in positions of honor. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? Hopefully you're like, no, I've never heard that before. That would be great. But even, even in our culture, maybe just to help us understand a little bit, when, when you ask someone to come sit by you, aren't, aren't, like at Thanksgiving, isn't that in a way a, a giving of honor to that person? Just in a very small way, even in our culture, when you say, hey, come sit by me. Come sit by me. Especially if you're in a place of authority or someone in a position of authority says, hey, why don't you come, why don't you come to lunch with me? Isn't it a, an expression of honor? That's what they're requesting but amplified to the highest level. Jesus, when you're reigning in your eternal kingdom, we want to be on your right and on your left. You have to understand where they're coming from. They're, they're coming from a, a position, uh, or from a culture, rather, where position was everything, where prominence and authority what was, was paraded around. It wasn't something that was kind of secret where the, the CEO of, the, of uh, a corporation kind of dressed down so he just kind of looks like one of the, you know, no, you, you were paraded around. Like the Pharisees they, and the whole Sanhedrin, they, the leaders of Jerusalem would have these long robes and the, the colors and the layers of their robes even depicted their position within the seventy. It was all about position, all about boasting, all uh, about looking uh, like you were someone of importance. The men in that society particularly would, would live their entire lives jockeying for the highest position of authority that they could obtain, even if that was just simply in their own families. It was a culture of position and a culture of pride. And honestly, every culture has this in a different form. We have it in our culture in different, different forms. But they, they came from a place where that kind of thing, that positional authority was of the utmost importance. And you've got to remember who these guys actually are. 
These are not men who ever thought that they would ever be in a position where they might be elevated to a place of, of positional honor. These are fishermen. These are tradesmen. These are average guys. They lived their entire life, their entire upbringing. They never for a second thought that they would one day be walking around with the most influential and controversial person that has ever walked the face of the earth or, or ever has since or ever will. And James and, and John are the inner circle of those who are, are with Jesus. I love what Dr. Lloyd-Jones said about how, how wonderful it is that we can so often uh, look at the disciples and think about what they must have been thinking and see ourselves in their thoughts. I wonder if you've ever had an opportunity where, where you came into a position that you just never thought that you would ever end up in. And the moment you were offered that opportunity, all of a sudden pride begins to fill your heart as you start to think it as how how you might capitalize on something that you always never thought was um, in the cards. And all of a sudden, now you're in a position where you might be able to do something that you once thought wasn't possible, and, and you start to think, how can I capitalize on this? How can I take advantage of, of this relationship or, or this position or this thing that I've been offered or, or given? And pride begins to swell that's what's going on in John and his brother James, but not just them. It's actually what's in the heart of all the disciples, and it's what is in all of our hearts as well, isn't it? Apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. This is really a continuation of what we saw back in Mark chapter 9. In Mark chapter 9, you may remember in, in verse 33, as they came into Capernaum, when they went into the house, Jesus asked his disciples, what were you discussing on the way? Well, what were you guys talking about on, on the way over here? And the reason why he asked them is to draw out their pride and their arrogance because here's what happens. He asks them, what, what, what were you discussing on the way? And you know, you know what they do? You know what they say? They don't say anything. Verse 34 says, they kept silent for... On the way, they had argued about which one of them was the greatest. You see, they have been given a position of power and of influence. They have been called out of the crowds. And they wanted to figure out among them which one was the highest up in the pecking order. I just want to remind you of something that the scriptures say that I, I think that it is just so wonderful and might help us just, just praise the name of Jesus this morning. In Hebrews chapter 1, the writer of Hebrews tells us about Christ, that he is the radiance of the glory of God, that he is the exact imprint of his nature, and that he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So Christ is the exact imprint of the nature of God. And in Psalm 145, verse 7, we learn something about the nature of God. We learn that he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. I just got to tell you that I see in this morning, this morning in our text, that patience and forbearance and grace and slowness to anger of our God as he responds to this ridiculous and arrogant and prideful request. Because when I'm reading through the text, you know what I expect to read? As I'm sure you do as well. 
when James and John say, Lord, grant us to sit on your right and your left after, after Jesus just said, the son of man will be handed over, crucified, and on the third day rise. And they say, okay, when all that's done and you're in your kingdom, after you've died, after you've suffered, after you've been mocked and spit on and betrayed and you're on your throne, would you allow me and my brother to sit on your right and your left? You know what I expect Jesus to say? Oh, you sons of thunder, right? You sons of Zebedee, you sons of thunder, with all your ambition, with all your pride, with all your putting your foot in your mouth and saying things that you ought not to say, who do you think you are? But he doesn't, does he? What is our Lord who is so slow and so patient and knows our frame knows that we are dust, as the scriptures say. What does he say to these two foolish and prideful men? He says, you don't know what you're asking. What a patient response from our Lord. How often we pray to God and we ask for things and we do not know what it is that we're asking. He says to them, you don't know. You don't know what you're asking are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are. We're able. We're able. It is so the interaction of a child with their parent, isn't it? I heard a preacher say this about these guys and I just thought, you know, that is so true how often do children come to their parents and say, teacher, mom, dad, I want you to do for me whatever we ask of you. <laughs> no explanation as to what it is that we're going to ask. Just do whatever we ask, please. Okay, well, have you done what I told? Oh yeah, we'll do, we'll do whatever you say. Whatever you want, we'll do it. Just do, what, just do what I'm about to ask. Isn't that the interaction that's happening here? And so how often do our kids, they just don't know what they're asking. They don't know what they're asking. No, you can't cross the highway to go play on the other side. You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm going to drink? Are you able to be baptized with the baptism to which I'm going to be baptized? Jesus was referring to the suffering that he was about to endure. He's speaking specifically as to the wrath of God towards sin that he was about to bear for our sake. The just for the unjust, the righteous for the unrighteous, the holy for the unholy, the pure for the blemished. Jesus was about to endure the full wrath of God towards our sin that is what a cup in scripture represents. Let me, let me give you a couple examples so you see what I'm talking about. In Psalm 75, 8, referring to a, the idea of a cup, it says, for, the Lord, for in the hand of the Lord there is a cup of foaming wine, mixed, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. In Isaiah 51, 17 the prophet says, wake yourself, wake yourself. Stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. That, that's the cup that Jesus is about to bear. 
about to drink, about to take upon himself for our sake. He is the suffering servant depicted in Isaiah 53. And he says to these men, are you, are you ready to suffer as I am about to suffer? You want the place of honor. Are you ready to endure the suffering? We do know that in Philippians 2, that in response to the cup that Jesus drank on our behalf, that God gave to him the name that is above every name. That God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Christ's exaltation came after his humiliation on the cross. And so he asked them, are you really ready to, to suffer? And they say, of course, of course we are. Yeah, let's do it. Sign us up. We're ready to go. And the reality is they weren't ready to endure that, were they? Not yet, but they would. They would be ready. And in fact, Jesus prophesies and says about them that they will, in fact, drink the cup. He goes on to say in a verse, um, verse 39, the cup that I drink, you will drink, and the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. The reality is, is that they would go on to suffer for the sake of the gospel, for the name of Christ. In fact, we read in Acts 12 too, we read about James. James is the first of the 12 apostles to be killed for the sake of Christ for the sake of the gospel. He's not, not the first martyr, but he's the first of the 12. We read in Acts 12 too uh, about the time that Herod the king, so he was like a local leader. He had been given a, a region by Rome to, to rule in. He laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. Verse three, and when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And it's in Revelation 1 that we read about John's fate, where John says in verse 9 of Revelation 1, I, I John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. John, as an old man, James died young. He died, died just not very long after Jesus' ascension. But John lives to be an old man. And as an old man, because of the gospel and the message that he proclaimed, he was sent to Patmos, which was a, which was a, a prison work camp on an island. And he suffered and no doubt was the cause of his death was hard labor, hard conditions. And he was there for the sake of the name of Christ. I, I remembered a last service, and it's not in my notes, but I'm remembering again. So I'll, I'll tell you just how, how wonderful is it to think about how true it is that those of us who have believed in Christ are transformed from who we want were into new, truly new creations, truly new people. These disciples 
who are fighting and arguing for who is the most important. James and John, who are asking Jesus this outlandish request. When we get into the book of Acts and they have now, the church has come upon the Holy Spirit, they're speaking with authority and power. They are, are dragged in, the disciples begin to be dragged in one by one and in different circumstances uh, into the courts and, and they're beaten and they're flogged and they're ridiculed. And they no longer consider their suffering a, a means by which they might be elevated to authority or to prominence. Do you know what Acts tells us about their response to suffering? They went out of that place praising God that they were considered worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. Do you see the difference? Do you see how massive the change? That these men who said, Jesus, do whatever we ask. Give us the highest position of authority. Would then, after his death and resurrection and ascension, suffer and say, well, we're just glad that we got the privilege to do so. That is a massive transformation. That is a transformation of the heart that only the Spirit of God can bring in us. So the others were indignant towards John and James. Anybody want to guess why they were upset with them? Not because their request was out of line, but because they didn't get there first. You know how in a big family, there's an argument going on and everybody's talking at the same time and talking over one another and if you walk into the room it's just noise just everybody's arguing and going at each other and then you know somebody kind of brings that to a conclusion and some time goes by and you think it's over and then somebody says something and all of a sudden the argument erupts again as if it never stopped you guys know what i'm talking about that that's what's going on here it's not just a chapter before that they're all arguing over who's the greatest. And then Jesus kind of calms that down and says, look, hold on. That's, that's enough, enough of this. You, you need to be like this child, Jesus says in, in, um, in, in chapter 9. And then a little bit of time goes on. And here's, here's John and James saying, hey, hey Jesus, while, while the others are over there, can we just ask this request? And they get wind of it. And all of a sudden, the argument is reared up again. Who do you guys think you are? That's what's, that's what's going on here. They're, they're indignant, not because uh, of what James and John did, but because they did it first. You can imagine what Peter was thinking, like, oh, I was gonna, you know, if I didn't stop to tie my shoe, I would have been the first, first there. And so Jesus sees them arguing again, and he once again calls them to himself. Again, look at the patience of our Lord. Look at his, look at his, his slowness to anger. Look, look at how he understands how frail we are, how, how, how even though he has called us, even though we are being transformed, that, that we are still in process. How patient he is with our frailty. He calls them again to himself, and look what he says. They're arguing, and, and he says to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, 
and their great ones exercise authority over them. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, look, you understand that in the world, this is how people act. The reality is, is this was happening amongst the people of God as well. The leaders of Jerusalem were elevating themselves over the people just as much. But Jesus is saying this, this is a worldly thing. This is the way that, that the Gentiles act, not the way the people of God ought to be acting. Not, not the people who have a king, who, who know who God is. This is the way that they exercise authority. But verse 43, but it shall not be so among you. It shall not be so among you. Church, listen to me very carefully. I have grown up in church. I don't remember a time that I was not in church. And here's what I know about church folk. Here's what I know about churches, especially as they grow more established and are around a little bit longer. I know, as well as you do, that pride has a tendency to rear its ugly head in congregations all over the world throughout time. And church folk are just as likely and just as much in danger as the disciples of getting into an argument over who is the greatest. I just want to let you know that as a church, by God's grace and with much prayer, we will not allow this church to become a place of pride and a place where we seek to elevate ourselves over one another, where we seek to figure out who ends up sitting in the front row in positions of authority. We will not exercise our rights over one another but we will seek God and we will pray and we will ask God to humble us as a church and as individuals so that we will love one another as we ought to love one another and serve one another as we ought to serve one another instead of uh, all constantly trying to, um, to get what we think that we deserve or are owed. Are you tracking with what I'm saying? As our, as our church is no longer a new thing, and as you become more comfortable here, we do become ever increasingly in, in more danger of, of arguing over things and of expecting things. We as elders are in danger of expecting more of you. And you are in great danger of expecting more of me than I'm able to offer. And so I was praying this week and I ask you to continue to join me in prayer that God would humble us and humble our church. Because humility, humility is necessary for faith and for our worship and for our love for one another. We cannot come together for corporate worship and come with a sense of pride. We will not have worship in this room, but we will have hypocrisy in this room. Nor can we serve one another without being able to consider one another of more value than ourselves. So what's our example? Well, it's Christ himself who says in our text this morning, even the Son of Man 
came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So while pride is at the center of our fallen condition, humility is at the center of who we are as new new creations in Christ. So we ought to pray that God would humble us, humble our prideful hearts. So let's look just very briefly as we draw to a close here at humility as necessary for faith, for worship, and for our relationship with one another. Can we just do that just very briefly together? Let's look at for faith. Here's, here's what we mean by this. In John James, or I'm sorry, in James 4, 6, James tells us, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. No one in their pride, as I said, calls out to God for salvation. Romans 10, 9 and 10, it describes to us the process of our response to the gospel. As we hear the good news of the gospel, as the Holy Spirit illumines our, the eyes of our heart to see the truthfulness of the gospel, and we respond, here's how we respond. Romans 10, verse 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in his heart, that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So here's the thing about that. In order to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, you understand what that means for him to be Lord? It means that he's not just your Savior and you remain Lord. He is Savior And he is Lord. Do you know what that makes you in the relationship? You are his slave. Now, I know that's not a politically correct word, but it is a biblical word. You were once slaves to sin. You are now slaves to righteousness, slaves to God. Here's what that means. It means that we are obedient and we are submitted to his lordship. See, pride is us saying, I rule, I reign, I'm in charge, I'm in control. You can save me, you can offer grace, you can give me a ticket into heaven, but in this life, in this little circle here, I'm king, I'm sovereign, I rule, I reign. And as David prayed earlier this morning, to exercise that level of pride, even after profession that, G, that there is salvation through no one else but Christ, but to remain prideful is to deny the peace and the satisfaction, and listen, the three-letter word, the joy that comes from glad submission to Christ. See, the reason why we don't like this language and this language seems so opposed to the world is because it is. But this is how the kingdom of heaven works. He is king. He is Lord. He is sovereign. And we are not. Praise be to God. See, as believers, we understand that to be very good news. Very, very good news. And so for, in order for us to exercise or express our faith, it, it must come from a place of humility. It's an oxymoron to say, in pride, I cried out to God for grace. In my arrogance, I stood before him and allowed him to show me mercy. See what I mean? Let's talk about for worship. Worship is very simple. 
Worship is literally to ascribe worth to God. We are, we are designed to be worshipers of God. You are created to worship God. That's why you exist. That's why you're here. To worship is to ascribe worth. And our lives are to be living acts of worship, living sacrifices, Scripture would tell us. Which means that worship is not just when we sang together this morning, but literally everything that you do from the moment you wake up in the morning to the moment you fall asleep, and even while you're sleeping, everything that you do is to be an act of worship, ascribing worth, not to yourself, but to God, all throughout your life. It is an impossibility to be ascribing worth to God if we are too busy ascribing worth to ourselves. We, we cannot be building ourselves up and exalting God at the same time. I, I just, let me give you a, a biblical example that might help us. I think the best example of this idea of pride and humility comes from what John the Baptist did. You remember John the Baptist, was, he was the last of the prophets. He was a, a wild man, but a, but a man of, of tremendous cultural influence. And people were going out to him from all over in droves to be baptized by John the Baptist and to hear him preach and, and proclaim, make straight the way of the Lord. He was so influential that you know what people started to ask him? Are you the Messiah? Are you the Messiah? Could you imagine your ministry and your life being such that someone comes up to you and asks you, are you by chance the Christ? Can you imagine the level of danger, of pride that you would be in in that moment? Danger, danger, danger. You know what John the Baptist ended up saying? As his disciples came to him and said, look, they're no longer looking to you. They're, they're going after Jesus. Remember what John said? He said, he must increase and I must decrease. You see, at the, the very heart of our lives as acts of worship is an exaltation of Christ is it saying that, no, my, uh, my expectations and my uh, desires and my will and what I thought I was going to do with my life, that, that stuff doesn't matter anymore, but his will be done, his kingdom come. Jesus said, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these other things, don't worry about them, they'll be added to you. To ascribe worth to God is not to devalue ourselves, but to exalt him above us and above all things. To him belongs the glory and power and dominion forever and ever and ever. Amen. Which is why I love what the psalmist said. And it's why when we sing that song, How Great Thou Art, we all sing a little bit louder. It's because of that last stanza. When Christ shall come, Thank you. In humble adoration with, oh, well, we were doing good there for a minute. When Christ shall come with shouts, with shout of acclamation and take me home, what joy will fill my heart. Listen to this. Then I shall bow in humble adoration.
and there proclaim, my God, how great thou art. Humble adoration. You know why? Because there's no such thing as prideful adoration. There is no way for a prideful heart to truly honor God. And honestly, that's why we sometimes have a hard time worshiping. It is. Because oftentimes we come into the presence of God together corporately particularly or in your own private time. And for one reason or another, you feel as though you have not been given something that you were due or God has not done something for you that you expected him to do or your brother or sister wronged you in some way. And now here you are so focused on what, not getting what you are owed that you are incapable of ascribing to God the glory and the honor that he most certainly deserves. And so pride becomes a hindrance to our worship. And then finally, and lastly, and probably most obviously, it is essential Well, I don't have my page, so I'm going to have to make it up. It's essential for the way that we love one another, isn't it? We, we cannot serve each other, love each other, without humility. It, it's impossible. It, it's one thing to serve other people knowing that they may owe you in the future. It, it's one thing to do a favor so, for somebody to earn some credit so that later on it might feed your ambition. It is another thing to, as Hebrew, as uh, Philippians 2 tells us, to consider others of greater value, of more worth than yourself. More worth than yourself. I pray that that would be something that marks our church that in humility we would worship and in humility we would honor God, worship him together. In um, Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, this was my conclusion. So I guess we're just going to have to go the rest of the day because I, I don't have a way to wrap this up. I'm just kidding. Can I loosely quote it? Paul says, look, not many of you were wise, Not many of you were of noble birth, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, the weak, to shame the strong. God chose the things that are nothing, even the things that are not, so that no one may boast, so that no one may boast. Then he ends by saying that we ought to let our boast let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So may that be our boasting. May that be our pride. Not in what we have done, but what Christ has done for us. Amen? Would you stand with me this morning? Let's close in prayer. Lord, we are humbled this morning by your word. We are humbled as we consider what you have done for us, and we are certainly humbled as we consider your holiness and who you are. And I, I pray, Lord, that uh, humility would mark us, mark this church and the men and women and the young people in it, that, that uh, we would be known, Lord, here by the way that we love and serve one another and that that would flow from uh, us understanding 
the way that we have been served. And so, Lord, I thank you that you have, for each of us that have believed in your name, that you have, um, that we have been crucified with Christ, that it is no longer we who live, but you who lives in us, and that the life that we now live, we live to you in a, a new nature and with new desires, new affections, and even new, new personalities. And so I pray that you would help us to increase in humility as we look more to you. And I do pray, Lord, this morning for anyone who has not, um, not in a moment of humility made that confession that you are Lord, believed in the gospel, that today would be the day, that today would be the day that they recognize that pride and any other road outside of you leads to death and that they would cry out to you in repentance for grace, that they would be humbled at the foot of the cross and that you would graciously upon that confession forgive them of their sin and bring them into your kingdom. So Lord, in all these things, you be glorified in our midst. We must decrease, you must increase. So Lord, we love you. We give you the rest of, of this day. In your name, amen. Amen. Well, church, I, um, I love you very much. I'm not going to sing this morning, so God, may the Lord bless you, and may he keep you, may he cause his face to shine upon you, and may he be gracious to you, both now and forevermore. All right, I love you, church. We'll see you back here next week, all right?